well, I just have one thing to say before we start. Dave, this pot is making you aggressive. <laughs> what kind of pot <laughs> makes you aggressive? That's my question. Hi, everybody. We'd love to get your feedback. You can post a review wherever you found this podcast. Find us on Twitter at RealDMC or send us a message at feedback at realdmc.com. If you send us some feedback, we may include it in our listener feedback section and you'll hear it on the show. Thank you for listening and now on to the episode. Hey everybody, welcome to the Real DMC podcast. DMC stands for Dave, Marcus, and Colin. Uh, Right up front, we'd like to say that we're enjoying getting some feedback from our listeners. Uh, We did recently receive some feedback from Matthew, who apparently enjoyed our Matrix podcast. Uh, The first thing he said was that, unlike me being unsuccessful trying to get my son to watch The Matrix, who was simply not watching it out of rebellion, uh, he said he was able to get his son to watch it, and his son enjoyed it. Uh, However, his main problem with the movie was that he didn't believe that the human consumption, the idea of actually grinding up people and refeeding them back to people, would be enough to power Uh, the machines. And he specifically gave us some information and he said, the average human body has 125,000 calories, according to Google. The average person needs about uh, 700,000 calories per year. So if you start off with 7 billion people, you'd need to divide this by five each year to keep feeding people. By year 10, you'd be down to 3,584 people. And after 15 years, you'd only have one person left. So Matthew (laughs) would really like to thank you for the detailed analysis there. And I apologize (laughs) if our podcast actually resulted in anybody having to do math. But it was fun to get your message, Matthew, so thank you. I just want to know who figured out how many calories there are in a human body. Well, that, that has to be variable. So, for example, your average American probably has more calories than maybe, a, say, a, a European. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> you could go to different states in the U.S. and find some calorie-rich we're, areas. <laughs> we're mining oh. Houston. Let's go. <laughs> I, I could feed a family of four for at least a year. <laughs> All right. Well, anyways, thanks for the feedback. And of course, uh, please keep sending it in to us. It's just fun to connect with our listeners. So uh, today we're here to talk about Stanley Kubrick's final film uh, starring Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Let's discuss the narrative minefield that is Eyes Wide Shut. What's the big mystery? I have seen one or two things in my life, but never anything like this. You know there is no way on Earth you're going to leave here tonight without taking me with you. minefield well it could be a narrative minefield i don't know i I find this movie absolutely fascinating it is quite interesting but i'm not sure in in a good way i I don't know i'm I'm curious to see what our opinions on this movie are going to be because this movie went so far as to potentially change my overall opinion of kubrick which i think is pretty interesting i'll talk about that as we go through it i don't think mine changed or it changed maybe for the other the other director really yeah no i'm actually because maybe you had the the reaction that i had the first time i watched this movie because i've only seen this movie twice and it's been it was a completely different experience the two times i've watched it 
I've seen scenes of this movie over and over again, but suddenly I lose interest. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me ask you, Marcus, how many times have you seen this movie? I mean, had you seen it before today? Yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I watched it when it first came out. I was really excited. I remember the trailer when it came out. It had the uh, Chris Isaac song and the Kidman and, and Cruz and Kubrick and the big bold letters. Uh, I saw the preview probably in a theater, probably watching The Matrix. I saw the preview or something. And I was excited for it. Kubrick hadn't made a film in, what, like 12 years or something like that? Yep. And he's been, a, I think, a highly regarded director. So there's excitement for it. I don't know if I saw it immediately in the theater, if I waited for it to come out. Uh, but... The first time watching it, it was just bizarre. And then I've probably seen it maybe all the way through. It's a pretty long movie. Um, all the way through, probably, this would probably be my third time seeing it. There's an Eyes Wide Cut website that re-edited the movie down to just about two hours. So the original movie is 240. And uh, it's it's kind of interesting to uh, kind of view. I watched the first uh, maybe 15 minutes of that. And it zips along in that. You don't have like... You miss out on the, the critical Nicole Kidman going to the bathroom at the beginning to get ready. <laughs> Some of that stuff just like, okay, do we need this? Like, we can get into it. Yeah, Marcus, always looking for a shorter version of the movie to watch. <laughs> Hey, we gotta we gotta we gotta pick up the pace here. Well, let me, let me finish just some general setup. So uh, the film does maintain a seven point four rating on the IMDb. So what's interesting is that's not particularly high. I mean, that's so it's I mean it's a good score, I guess you know relative to a ten point rating, but. For I the think rest relative of, to no, I think that's that's pretty much right on for IMDb. Anything in the seven range is like really good. So Natural Born Killers at seven point three is really good. <laughs> Fuck that movie. Um, <laughs> uh, so it does, tracking ahead of Natural Born Killers does does surprise me. Well, I find what I find more interesting is it, the relation to Kubrick's other films, right? Because so The Shining and Doctor Strange Love come in at eight point four, and then you have A Clockwork Orange, a Space Odyssey, and Full Metal Jacket that are all at eight point three. The Interesting thing is that this is, you know, regarded as maybe among that group, maybe his worst film, I guess, in terms of popular sentiment. And definitely the critical reviews when this thing came out, pretty widely divided. Like I I read a bunch of reviews and some of them were wildly positive, but a lot of them were pretty negative. And uh, what but what I find really interesting is that Kubrick himself said that this was his best work, apparently. Like he believes that this was this was his best film. Let, let me just interject here. I, I think this is uh, something I think is, I think it, it happens a lot with Kubrick films, which is that it's really hard to understand his movies by just watching it the first time. And I'm so not surprised that there were mixed reviews when it came out. But I think over the last, you know, 20 years, people have changed their opinion of this movie. And I think if you give it another 10 years, it's going to be up in the eights on IMDb. <laughs> Like literally, it's just, I'm guessing you had the same experience that I did, which was when I first saw it, I was basically underwhelmed. And that was my opinion that I had for probably about 15 years. And then I watched it again about three years ago and I really liked it. And I think part of the reason, at least for specifically this movie, why there was a lot of negative reaction to it. I think it was sort of ruined by the marketing campaign because people's expectations were for like an erotic thriller and right. a sexy movie. And that's not what this movie is. No, it's, you know, it's interesting because I was definitely influenced by the marketing campaign myself. I'm sure I was looking back at it because I recall watching this movie thinking that it's kind of boring. It's a little weird. Uh, I don't know if I like it. And it certainly didn't live up to the hype of this whole 
you know, the crew's kidmen because they were married at the time. And it's going to be some sort of, you know, interesting, you know, this or um, actually the I think what I'd heard about this movie originally was it was a they were psychiatrists. Like that was, I think, one of the things that had leaked out about the plot of this movie, that they were both psychiatrists and they were both having affairs. And it was going to be about, you know, sexual politics and marriage. And and then I saw it and I'm like, this is just a this is a weird, slow, boring odyssey this is not erotic at all and it, what's interesting is i will maintain at least on the the orgy side of it i think it's amazing that kubrick manages to stage an orgy that has absolutely no titillation whatsoever it's it's very it's <laughs> it, it's 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 fascinating to me and and so then you know so, my original so uh, it's funny because stephen hunter of the washington post at the time called it the dullest orgy he'd ever seen yeah and i mean it's, it's, <laughs> and it's totally true it's it's because it's, right. it's very you know it's very dispassionate the, the whole thing it's and very theatrical and it's more about a commentary on the people that are there obviously then the the orgy or the sex is very secondary to me when you're experiencing it it's all very mechanical just very like people seem to just be going through the motions and not like especially with the music playing during it too it just seems so like staged to a certain degree like they're performing almost. It's, it's interesting that you use that that word staged because i feel like this whole movie i mean obviously it's it's a movie but it it just feels everything including the dialogue these conversations it just all feels very staged the yeah. the dialogue the interaction between characters is is a bit fascinating it's just so odd i'm not sure anybody's acting like an actual human being in this movie and you know yeah. there's a i mean it's a very uh, i mean i get the whole sort of dream aesthetic that kind of runs through the entire film so it's a little bit everybody's a little bit you know potentially off yeah, yeah. a bit um but it's just I, this movie is fascinating to me. I, my so my experience getting back to the the rewatch on this was, you know, saw it once, didn't like it, said I'll, I'll probably never watch this movie again. That sort of led to you know kind of my not sort of closing the book on Kubrick, but I'm like eh, whatever Kubrick. Like I was a little bit you know well, he died, so. <laughs> he didn't make any additional movies. <laughs> he closed the book on himself. Well, so I, I mean I had this opinion of Kubrick that it was a little bit of. Uh, just dispassionate right and and we can talk more about kubrick when we get to our kubrick specific section but um but, but then upon rewatch i have an entirely different opinion of this movie i think this movie is actually fascinating engaging i'm trying to figure out what this movie is actually about because i can make an argument that there are five or six narratives that are that are the primary reason why you make this movie and <laughs> and all of them are actually somewhat interesting I completely agree. It was it was sort of fascinating when I, like I said, when I watched it again after like 15 years, I think I had just sort of forgotten everything surrounding the movie, all that hype and build up and all, and just watched it for what it was. And I was like, I like this movie. <laughs> and I challenge yeah. anyone to like, just go ahead and watch it again, because I think you're, I think you will like it as well. Yeah. It, it's. Yeah, I think going in, like you were saying, Colin, the marketing at the beginning, I thought it was more of a crime thriller, like an erotic crime thriller or something like that. Yeah, yeah, because here's what I think a lot of people were thinking. Okay, it's Kubrick, it's Cruz and Kidman, and it's an erotic thriller. Oh my God, we're going to see like Basic Instinct by Kubrick. Right. Yeah, this I think it's going to be like a, a... So not what this movie is. This, is, this movie is almost, almost like a Shining, this, right? This movie is that's almost kind of asexual in a way. It honestly is. Like that's it, It's it's so distant. I've never seen Just like Tom so Cruise. many boobies and not had a boner. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good way to think about it, actually. Yeah. yeah. But you threw me off now. <laughs> 
by the way, I'm sorry, just to, just to close on the initial wrap on this too. So uh, this was made for a budget of $65 million and it was filmed in England. So that's one of the things that I think is sort of interesting is they built a lot of sets over there where it's basically taking the place of New York, but it's clearly not New York. And I actually think that that lends itself a little bit to the, the fe- sort of the slightly surrealist feel of the film. Um, and yeah. the other thing Kubrick, is it, Kubrick doesn't like to travel. So that's where yeah. he doesn't. Know. And uh, so it made 55 million in the U S box office and it ended up making 165 million globally. So I guess, I mean, I certainly think that you would consider it a financial success. And if I didn't already mention it, it was the first film that Kubrick had that ever opened at number one at the box office. The only one in his career. It was, it, it's, it would turned into the highest grossing Kubrick film ever. Yeah. Is it also the only one that didn't get an Oscar nomination? I, I meant to I look it up because I, I noticed it was nominated for many awards, but none of those were Academy Awards. So going through, uh, so for Kubrick, how would you rate this among his uh, top films? What is your top three Kubrick movies? Mm. I was not prepared for this, but um, I'm going to say. <laughs> it seems like a pretty easy one. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say. Dr. Strangelove. I think you can rally, dude. Come on. <laughs> well, Dr. Strangelove, I'm going to say. Uh, I don't know. I've never ranked them. <laughs> I tell you what. Here are the movies that are on my my list of 238. Doctor Strangelove, 2001, Space Odyssey, A Clockwork Orange, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, and Eyes Wide Shut. So all six of those movies are on my 238. Interesting. Yeah. So so for me, it's yeah. it's pretty easy. Prior to watching this movie, I would have said that it's Doctor Strangelove and Spartacus. The, those are the top two Kubrick movies for me personally. I, I love Doctor Strangelove. I think that, and I think as a comedy director, honestly, Kubrick's pretty great. Uh, oh, he's, the, he's an amazing satirist. Yeah, and um, The Shining is actually a movie that I think of. I mean, I love that movie, and that might be my kind of favorite movie in terms of the most entertaining or you know the one that I've gone back to the most. But that one is interesting because I certainly consider that a Kubrick film from a Obviously, the way that it's shot and all the, you know, the symmetry and the colors and the long tracking shots, all the stuff that you normally associate with Kubrick. But because that's a Stephen King property, I sort of I don't think of that necessarily as a as a true sort of, you know, Kubrick film in terms of him, you know, creating it and, and putting it all together. So it's, it's kind of a it's, it's sort of a half and half on that one for me. Interesting. I King disowned that movie. <laughs> he did. Well, King did. disowned it. I mean, and Kubrick obviously changed it and changed the ending in particular quite radically. But I guess I'm saying that. I view the other stuff that, oh, you know, what's interesting though. However, that being said, since this film is actually based on uh, a 1926 novella by Austrian writer Arthur Schnitzer, Schnitzler, um, Schnitzler Grubin. Um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, th- you know, and by the way, when you read the summary of that novella, this movie tracks to it. Uh, and I, I have not read the novella myself, but it tracks to it almost all the way through. So yeah, I don't know. Anyways, yeah. getting back to it for me, it, it, I would probably put Dr. Strangelove. That's at the absolute top of the list for me. And then maybe The Shining and Spartacus. That'd be my top three. I, I just want to say that I think you're wrong. I think The Shining is 100% <laughs> a Stanley Kubrick movie. Well, he directed and, it. So, so yes, that's true. No, 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 no. But I mean, it, I, I don't think of it as being a Stephen King property. And the fact is that, you know, Kubrick, Every one of his movies is adapted from something, from from some novel. Yeah, actually, so let me tell you what, I, what I'm saying is it's I think of The Shining first as a as the Shining horror film. I think of every other movie on this list as a Kubrick film. It, that'd be Interesting. The, that's, okay. that's, that's the difference in, in the way I look at it. Right. I mean, The Shining is its own thing because I also shot saw The Shining when I was nine or ten or whatever. And it, you know, at the time it scared the shit out of me and it had a different, you know, so that movie 
has a different place in my personal film experience than all of his other films, right? Oh, okay. I, I totally understand that now because yeah. it, it's like you didn't go in the, the nine-year-old you go in to watch The Shining because it was a Stanley Kubrick movie. Exactly, right? It, it was its own thing. It's like, you know, I wanted to see the blood coming out of the elevators, right? That's what I was excited about. Not not the... Of course you were. You know, not not the amazing As carpeting. That now, like, I can watch that movie now and I love the carpeting and the Overlook Hotel, right? It's like, the, and the camera angles and all that kind of shit. It's like, okay, now I can appreciate it as a Kubrick film. But it's just, that's the difference for me about that movie. Yeah, I would say The Shining is actually my number one Kubrick movie. Um, I'm sorry, you guys didn't list uh, Full Metal Jacket, which is, I, I would put it number two. It's on my I list. I haven't seen Doctor Strange Love in a long time, so it's hard for me to uh, to rank that one. I need to watch that one again. And then I'd probably put Spartacus third. Yeah, we, we talked about it. I love the Full Metal Jacket, the, fir- the first half of Full Metal Jacket. Uh, the second half, yeah, I true. don't. I, that's not, um, it, it, it dips for me personally, so that's why it doesn't make the list. Yeah, we talked about it in the 87 podcast. Yeah. But yeah. It's such a strong movie and such a like memorable movie. Well, let me ask this just as an open-ended question. What do you guys think this movie's about? What's the main point or the main sort of, uh, I don't know, message or anything else that's being delivered here? Women like to fuck too. (laughs) I mean, ultimately, this is something that men just are sort of like ignorant to. And when it comes down to it, I mean, that's what starts the argument. And that's what sort of propels the story. What would you think it's about? Yeah, I would say like the hard part, it depends like what view you look at it. There's like multiple different kind of angles. There's one you can just say there's a secret society pulling the purse strings of, of, of overall, right? There's this power elite and they're exploiting women. And then the other is like the, the dynamic between the marriage and the, uh, which is kind of to your point, right? That, you know, there's, there's two sides to the sexual sides of marriages and both are, you know, the historic view is the male dominant, whereas this one's showing like, hey, females have needs too and have, have wants and uh, kind of exploring that to some degree. But then the rest of it is very much like men exploiting women for their sexual parties and like the that pawn shop guy selling his daughter to the other guys. There's just like some very weird scenes and interactions with uh, various people throughout. Yeah, my take on it is that it's, the kind of the ultimate portrait of how clueless men are about female sexuality. Like that's, that's, that's really it in a nutshell. Right. I mean, I think that because, uh, the bill character is, you, he's a fucking moron. Right. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, 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 I mean, that's one way to, to, that's one way to, to read this movie. Right. I mean, like he goes through the whole thing and like, he's not getting any of it. And, and you can argue that it goes all the way and it wraps back around and he has made no progress whatsoever after he's gone through this entire journey. So that's, and that's just, you know, men are stupid about women's sexuality. And, and I ended up doing a fair amount of reading after watching this movie. And let me just say, man, you can go down the rabbit hole on this one if you want to read a bunch of articles, like, you know, with Kubrick, yes. right? And that's that's actually something else we can talk about in terms of Kubrick, just which the over the over analysis is something that has graded on me in the past, which I realized kind of maybe had a little bit of an impact on how I viewed his films. But uh, but there is a really interesting article from uh, Lila Shapiro in Vulture magazine. And the, the article is, you know, what I learned from watching Eyes Wide Shut a hundred times. And uh, it's an interesting read, but she has a quote in there and she says, you know, as long as men choose ignorance and women accept it, the relations between them will never change. Kubrick, the most controlling and precise of directors, knew exactly what he was doing. He didn't make a naive film. He made a film about naivete and the toll it takes on the world. I think that's actually, of all the stuff I saw, that to me was was probably the kind of the best sort of synopsis of, I think, what the, the primary message is. That, that being said, let me just say that you can rattle off, this is definitely a takedown on the ultra-rich, 
and their, you know, their boredom and their contempt for everybody else and how they treat people. It's, it, you could say that it's a takedown on the construct of marriage and parenting, right? And, and, the, and the, you know, the dynamics and the politics between, uh, you know, the two spouses. Uh, you, could, you could take an angle here that it's Eyes Wide Shut is a story about Bill, a man who's clueless about his own sexuality, because uh, <laughs> because there are there are there are three moments in this movie where they're basically minefield ahead. What was that <laughs> minefield ahead? Yeah. Well, I mean, there, so there are at least three moments in this movie where you could take the angle that if he's gay and he is experiencing, if, you know, if if his challenge with actually understanding female sexuality is because he's just not going to go there naturally, th- th- there's a very interesting argument to be made there. And then you can step all the way back and say, you know what? This was just Stanley Kubrick being like a maniacal jester and just taking two big name Hollywood stars and completely putting them through the meat grinder for his own entertainment. (laughs) And when when you read about the production of this movie and some of the choices he made, you know, trying to create actually like specifically trying to create tension between the two of them to to basically allow that to be, you know, to come out on the screen. It's fascinating i mean there are some there are some fascinating production details behind this when you start reading about it so yeah i had a very interesting experience watching this movie and uh, i think that you can it, it leaves itself open to interpretation in a lot of different angles well I'd, I'd love to hear those interesting things from the production maybe you should do a podcast on it <laughs> well okay I'll, I'll tell you a couple things so uh, so one was that he directed several scenes of them independent of each other and he would not allow them to share notes about what they were doing because he was trying to create a um, a purposeful distance between the two of them, so they you know wouldn't necessarily be you know on the same page, which is obviously opposite from what you're trying to do in terms of generating chemistry between actors. Um, there's an interesting like the scene that he filmed with uh, Nicole Kidman and the naval officer. He apparently filmed them uh, nude together six days, and he kept Tom Cruise off the set. Uh, so you can imagine, and, you know, and this guy was a male model, the naval, the naval officer was, and apparently he shot them in 50 different erotic positions and he told Cruz that he was doing that. Right. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's my wife with some, you know, good looking dude and yeah, they're actors and all that, but that has to be a little bit weird. So, and you can just go through and it's, you know, it's just, there are, I mean, I mean Kubrick's a, a, an interesting dude. <laughs> I learned a lot more about Kubrick, at least as a director and some of his, uh, tactics when I did some of the reading on this film. So I'm, I'm now, my fascination level with Kubrick has gone up quite a bit after doing some reading here. <laughs> uh, I will say that the, the argument between those two is a, a great argument because I don't know about you guys, but like I've, I've gotten into some minor arguments where I'm just like, stop, just stop now because no matter what you say, you're going to lose this argument. And this is like one of the all time greats where it's like, whatever you're going to say, you're just like digging yourself a hole. Yeah. So, I don't know, man. This, this movie is actually, here's, here's what I find. I'll just say what I really find fascinating about this movie is watching Tom Cruise. I could, I could watch, I wish there was another two hours of this movie just to watch Tom Cruise <laughs> and the way he's acting and responding to people because it's fascinating to me. Like, I'm not sure, I'm not sure he's Tom an Cruise, alien. I'm not sure he's Tom Cruise alien. knows what movie he's in when he, when he, as, with <laughs> is, this performance. It is so strange. It is just, like, he is an... Is he acting or is he like, it's such a weird, like, cluelessness to him throughout the movie. Like, he does a great job with it and I don't know if it's intentional or if it's just, dopey <laughs> it's so hard to tell the one cruisism that really stood out to me in this movie was when he bumps into nick nightingale at the christmas party 
and it's like this old friend he hasn't seen in, you know, like 10 years or something like that. And the way he greets him, like it's his so old weird. buddy, it's so weird. And, 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 yeah, and, he, and, and he, t- like he touches did not him, feel natural he touches him like three or four times in a very short <laughs> span. And, and the energy that he has when he sees that guy relative to the energy that he has in any other scene in the movie, it's night and day. It's totally different, right? So, so Bill is, out of anybody in the movie, including, you know, a couple, all these beautiful women that get put in front of him, who is he most enthusiastic and excited to see his old buddy from medical school, his male buddy from medical school. That's just uh, a so fact, this is, right? That's this is this. The, I wanted to explore that with you to see like what, what takes you had on that. So that's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about that, by the way, I sort of thought that, you know, Tom Cruise, his performance in this movie was fairly understated for Tom Cruise. And I, I kept thinking, Oh, that it must be because he's on his best behavior you know, because he's working with Kubrick, right? And then I thought about that one scene. I'm like, that's the one scene where he he becomes like Tom Cruise again. Like he, that's a one moment that he was allowed to be, you know, normal Tom Cruise. Right. So I guess yeah, he's I, worked with great directors, and like I don't know if Kubrick just is. No, I mean Kubrick. Held up Kubrick is Kubrick uh, is poking like him with a stick. Guy. He's an idol. He's yeah, okay. No, but no. he worked with Scorsese and Color of Money, and like he's done. Like, but he was he's done when he was young. But Kubrick is sort of at another level. My opinion, I think Kubrick's overrated, to be honest. It, it's hard to say because he, he's done so few movies. And that's why I would say I wouldn't put him up there with all the greats. Or he'd be he'd be lower on the list just because he hasn't produced enough work. He doesn't make the Hall of Fame just like Tim Lincecum. Like he doesn't have enough years behind him. He doesn't have enough movies behind him to uh Dude, it took to him 12 it. years to make this movie. <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like it's, it's 12 just years not... and 400 days of shooting, by the way. Yep. <laughs> And open-ended contracts with Cruz and Kidman, not not specifying an end date for the production, which is also something that's kind of crazy. And that's why I say, like, I because they signed up for it to work with a master, and I yeah. think that the ultimately, you know, there's a, there's a whole feeling of intimidation that he brings with him, right? And I think that that's why he was downplaying his performance. So, Marcus, you say he's overrated. So, how would you characterize, you know, how you feel about Kubrick in general? In general, I would say I have the general opinion of him being a great director. But then when you go and look at his movies, like, eh, they're good. I don't have, like, I have a much higher esteem for him than actual his work. So I think he carries this, like, gravitas from the past, either from Spartacus or, I don't know, from maybe 2001. And he, like, set this, like, high standard. And then everyone just, oh, that's Kubrick. Oh, that's Kubrick. And I think it like he's only made three movies since like 1980, right? He made the last three movies: The Shining, 1980, Full Metal Jacket, 87, then Eyes Wide Shut, 99. It's just not not a huge career. And I enjoy his work. It's funny because he reminds me of Tim Burton in a certain regard, not for the aesthetic, but he's more artist and he takes a lot more pain and artistry setting up the shots. He like his movies are beautifully lit, they're beautifully shot, they're just a certain aesthetic to them which are fantastic. Just the symmetry and the way he lays everything out is just really fantastic. But then he doesn't do that great of a job with the uh, storytelling. So yeah, I think in general, like like him as an artist, as a director and overall storyteller uh, aspect of it, I think that's where he falls short. And like The Clockwork Orange is similar to that. Barry Lyndon is beautifully shot, but I can barely get through that movie. I think I've tried to watch it a couple of times and never made it all the way through. And then even like Full Metal Jacket only goes through he only makes it halfway through to make a, a really great story, right? I, I totally agree with, with what you just said. 
because they are amazing movies to both see and hear. But to me, it's not about the storytelling with Kubrick. It's just yeah. being on this journey and it's a it's a visual feast. That's why I think he's an artist because he'll, he'll put in all this interesting material into it. He does kind of sow the seeds for great um, conspiracy theories because he just likes to include <laughs> like, yeah, all sorts, you know. right? And he's not doing it on purpose. I think he's just an artist of sorts and he just wants to put in like, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to have this in the scene or wouldn't it be interesting to have these whatever like i think this whole movie like is the wouldn't it be interesting to look at the secret society and all these crazy masks and all these people and like spookiness of it and just all that visuals of like the occult like what would it be like if you saw like the cult of uh, ultra rich and those shots are amazing like you see like the the people surrounding him and things like that but like from a believability standpoint and especially for this one and the the kind of overall story it's tough Colin, there's things that he does that other filmmakers don't do it because I think it's so difficult to do. So as a director, especially as, cause he was he started off as a photographer, right? Yeah. So he really knows how to compose an image. And he's also like an innovator with movie cameras and- The Steadicam shot for sure. Yeah. And so I knew about the Steadicam, but there are a couple of things I, I, I learned about while doing research for this movie. There's actually something that I think is now just a, a meme. It's called the Kubrick stare. Yeah. Right. Have you heard of this? Yeah, yeah the eyes, the close-up of the eyes. Yeah. yeah, head tilted down yeah. and looking up beneath your eyebrows, right? Yeah, you got, I mean, the, the perfect example of that the is shining. you got Jack Torrance in The Shining and you have um, yeah. and Gomer Pyle in Full Metal Jacket, right? The, you have yeah. the, those two yeah. exact stairs that are yeah. the same thing. Clockwork Orange, yeah. And then um, the other thing, which I, I love every time I see this, and this is what I think as an artist, like he's able to do and other filmmakers just can't do it, is um, something called uh, the Cosmic Zoom. Or the Kubrick zoom? Do you, are you familiar with that? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Probably not, but. So it, it's basically zoom in and zoom out. So there's like a slow zoom close up, there's a, a fast zoom close up, and then there's like a slow zoom out. So I'll give you a couple of examples. In this movie, Eyes Wide Shut, you know, they're at the secret society, the ritual that's taking place. And Bill, you know, looks up into the balcony and there's these two masked characters there and they they look at him, directly at him. And Kubrick slowly zooms in on them. Also in like Full Metal Jacket, when Private Pyle, you know, he's now like become completely dehumanized. And right. there's like this slow zoom in on him while they're doing some training. Um, yeah, yeah. There's also the fast zoom, like with Shelley Duvall in The Shining. You know, that one scene where she's coming up the stairs and she looks into the guest room and there's these two ghosts there. One's in a dog costume and you're like, what the fuck is going on here? Oh, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. fast <laughs> zoom, right? By the way, that, that's a total secret society moment in, from The Shining, actually. It, it parallels some of what you see in terms of the imagery for the orgy in this movie. Yeah. Oh, there's a, you oh, know, there's do... a lot of stuff like the party scene, the Christmas party in the beginning in the of this Shining. movie. Oh, is, wait, there's oh, it's yeah, just there's so. I was gonna say the party in The Shining too is very similar to that. Right. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Very very similar. Anyway, so yeah. he like really apparently this is a really really difficult thing to do is to zoom in and then also like zoom out so much that you focused on a character's face and he just brings it all the way back and you see the huge scope of what is actually going on in the in that scene. Yeah, it's like a signature for Kubrick, and I just absolutely love this. Interesting. So one of the other things that very noticeable in his movies, and especially in this one, and then Barry Lyndon is using the the lights, like available lights, and he tried to do that a bunch. And Barry Lyndon is famous for it. For he got a a camera from NASA to be able to f photograph just from candlelight, and just made it like impossibly difficult to do. They had to like modify the cameras. They had to do all this work. 
just to get focus on one on one point. Yeah, they did. They toned it down in this one a little bit less, but like that that opening Christmas scene, you totally see it with with all the lights and it just the 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 uh, kind of glow of them. It's just all very. Just a beautiful scene, like just the way it's shot, like the staircase with all the like hanging Christmas lights yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. The the lighting in this movie is is incredible. It's like very soft and yeah. dreamlike, and there and there, and there's the use of Christmas lights. I really, it's almost like in yeah. every scene you see these Christmas lights, except for the 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 orgy scene. And well, and, and the red and blue, the red and blue color palette that runs through this thing constantly too is also yeah. really interesting. Yeah. I, so, would you it, say Eyes Wide Shut is a uh, Christmas movie? I, I, I had was that as a question, you that. actually. <laughs> <laughs> I had that as one of my, my opening questions. <laughs> I, I read somewhere someone called it an alternative Christmas movie or an, or, or an adult an adult Christmas movie. <laughs> hey, kids! You know what? Before we open gifts, let's sit sit down and watch some Eyes Wide Shut as a family. <laughs> Well, let me yeah, give you. I'll give you my my Kubrick take because I, I, Colin, I think you're maybe off on maybe my. What? Let me ask this: What do you think my interpretation of Kubrick is, or what do you think my you know relationship to Kubrick is? With several discussions that we've had on this podcast over the last two years, I've come to the opinion that you're not a really a, a fan of Kubrick. You probably recognize um, the artistry that he has, but you're just you're not very engaged in his movies and and with his characters and. You're not essentially a big fan. Yeah, that that would have been accurate, probably right up until I watched this movie, and now I'm, now I may have changed my mind about that. I, right, because every think, time I asked you, like, oh, well, when was the last time you saw this this movie? I, it's been twenty years. I I feel like you you need to give him another go. Yeah. Well, okay. So so I would have put Kubrick, or I I kind of mentally I guess had him in the same category as. Um, maybe like Jane Campion or Terrence Malick, right? I, I kind of would have put him in that group, which is, mm. you know, some movies that are very interesting to look at and are created with some genuine artistry. But the question is, am I engaged enough to want to go back and, you know, is it is it having sort of an emotional impact on me or am I just really appreciating the film? I mean, here's the thing. I think Kubrick is a master filmmaker and I love watching his movies or looking at his movies would be a way to think about it because you know, the the design and the lighting and the symmetry and all that stuff is just fascinating to watch. I mean, it's just, but but I, but I there was a, always a distance for me in terms of, or, or in some of his movies, like a little bit of a distance to say, I'm not totally engaged with this. I'm not necessarily, am I enjoying it? That's the question. Am I really enjoying this movie or am I just appreciating it? There's a difference there. And so I'm thinking about, yeah. you know, so it's kind of like um, Scorsese for me, right? Which is, Raging Bull and Taxi Driver are two amazing movies, but if I'm going to watch rewatch one of his movies, it would probably be Goodfellas or Wolf of Wall Street because I would I would yeah. want, I would have a good time and, and be really engaged and interested in watching those movies. But that's where comparing Scorsese to Kubrick, there's like ten Scorsese films. You'd be like, oh, these are amazing. That's amazing. Like there can be like so many different ones. Whereas right. Kubrick, you're like, okay, there's like two I I really like, and the other are like, oh, they're all right. Like yeah, like I don't. There's I mean, a certain level of like. Do you like a Clockwork Orange? Like, do you enjoy watching a no. Clockwork Orange? No, like even, um, I yeah. don't. I mean, I, I can say that, right? <laughs> well, I mean, it's a, it's hard. There are scenes that are very hard to watch, and yet I I, I really enjoy watching that movie. Well, I it's I, it's I it, it's interesting a, to look at. I don't like that movie. I can just say that, right? That's an example of where my kind of opinion of Kubrick materialized, right? I mean, it's because it's one thing to watch a movie just for the sheer artistry, which there's tons of that there, but you know, do I need to see, am I engaged with the character, like beating another character to death with a large plaster penis? Yeah. There's just <laughs> no one nice in that movie. Like what, who do you like, well, what are you watching the movie for? Right. Like, it's, it's, just, it's the satire. 
It's not that funny. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Wait, I'll, I'll, I'll put on skyscraper. I mean, like, I'm not saying that, points. like, I, I, it's just like a, it's an, it's an easy, you know, hang to watch, you know, but, yeah. but these are all really interesting, good movies that capture my attention every time I watch them. Would you rather watch Wolf of Wall Street or Raging Bull? Oh, the Wolf of Wall Street. And which is, which, which in your opinion is the better overall film? I haven't seen Raging Bull in quite a long time. But well, exactly. From, uh, there you go. You're not sitting down for a Raging Bull rewatch? I mean, no, no, no. And that's the thing. I mean, I, we actually watched it in, in college and for a film class. And the artistry is amazing, but it's, it's, not a, it's, it's not a rewatchable movie for me. Right. And, that's, that, and that kind of is what a lot of the Kubrick films have felt like to me, I guess. That's, that's why I draw that as a comparison. So well, maybe because yeah, I, I agree. Gr- maybe because I grew up watching Kubrick films that for me I they are very rewatchable. Yeah, the, the okay, ultimate so let me ask you this. Would you rather watch Kubrick's Paths of Glory or Will Ferrell's Blades of Glory? <laughs> Paths of Glory. <laughs> Which I also <laughs> I also saw that in, in in college in film class. But yeah, Blades of Glory. It's not my favorite. Not my favorite Will Ferrell. Movie, Never seen it. Now, if it was Watch Paths of Glory either. or Step Brothers, I'm I'm going Step Brothers. I'll go Step Brothers on that one. It's the fucking Catalina <laughs> wine mixer, dude. <laughs> the ultimate test for me would probably be to go back and watch 2001: A Space Odyssey, because I remember the last time I watched that movie it was probably like maybe 15 years ago, and it, I, the visuals are very interesting. But I find the opening 15, 20 minutes of that movie. Uh, I am, I feel very disconnected watching it and, uh, you know, so I am, uh, <laughs> this is so, this is so funny because I can watch the first 15 to 20 minutes, like over and over and over really? again. Because okay, I'm the much rest more... of the movie that that's just like slow pacing and I, everything with Hal and I'm just not into that. But the first, yeah, I love the Dawn of Man segment. I mean, it yeah, is see, I don't at amazing. all. <laughs> that's <laughs> How can we be so not simpatico on, on Kubrick and, <laughs> on yet Kubrick, we are yeah, and everything else? I don't know. We're we're taking we're taking different angles on it, I guess. Wow. Okay. Uh, read the book. The uh, Arthur C. Clarke books are better. I have. I've read all those books. And it's a, yeah, it makes a lot the, more sense, by the way, when you read the yeah. book. <laughs> uh, so, anything else? How about uh, on the anything else about the production you want to highlight? Oh, one one thing I will highlight that I read that I think is fascinating is that apparently Kubrick engaged in marital psychotherapy like sat in on sessions with Cruz and Kidman where they were very raw and honest about what was what was and was not working within their marriage and he sat in those sessions with them and apparently then he rolled some of what he learned into the filmmaking that's awesome I mean, this guy is just he's nuts that's fucking I, insane and, 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 <laughs> and I love it I love the fact that you know you mentioned that he shot that scene with her and the naval officer that took six days to shoot right for for one minute of footage. Right. Yeah. I thought it was pretty funny that when Kidman and Cruz signed on to do this movie, Vincent D'Onofrio convinced them to either rent or, or buy a flat or a, or a house while you're in London. Because, because you're going to be there a while? It's going gonna, it's gonna to take longer than you think. That's yeah. funny. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if that's why he's made so few movies. He just puts too much effort into it or... I think, no, I think so. Well, he literally obsesses over every single detail in yeah. the, these films. Like, like all the books selects, on the shelf, apparently. Like he selects right, he, each individual book. Yeah. For this movie, he personally selected every single mask worn at this secret society. That's good. He needs like, to learn to delegate. <laughs> he, like he is just obsessed about every detail 
of the screen and everything in the background. I mean, well, it's, and it's, actually, so <clears throat> it's interesting you say that because that, that actually is one of the things that also probably informed my opinion of Kubrick, which is that it's a little tiring the over analysis that people uh, commit to his films. And was it room? Oh, well. <laughs> Right, I mean, yeah. <laughs> like uh, obsessive over analysis, right? I, I mean, is there is there another filmmaker that receives this level of obsession when it comes to sort of you know breaking things apart? I mean, maybe I don't know. If he's that detail oriented and he is picking it, then it makes some sense to obsess over it. Yeah, like if you're going over someone else, like David Fincher, I can see being similar, um, taking a lot of time and being being very precise. Right. But then other directors who who may not be as precise, like then it's not worthwhile to. And like, like, oh, some set designer put that in the background. I don't know why that's there, right? No point in debating what it is. But if Kubrick's one picking every single book on the shelf, then it makes sense to like. Yeah, well, you know, have you guys have like, you guys seen the Room Two Thirty Seven documentary? <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen the documentary, but I've I've read a I went a little deep on this one too. Uh, and there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there. This this really touches on the the whole secret society and that whole aspect of. Uh, was Kubrick like trying to shine a light on oh, it? Yeah, was, there, there's a whole like, oh, there's a man. whole angle that has come out like with some of the recent articles that Kubrick was yeah, somehow trying to tell Epstein the story of Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, which uh, yeah, I don't. It's I'm not so bought ridiculous. into it all. So no. Yeah, but you know, no. so that, that's I mean, the, the Room Two Thirty Seven thing is actually really interesting. So it's a great movie to watch because if you want to see some genuine nut jobs just putting their opinions into every little thing, and, and I think that level of obsession kind of maybe it created a little bit of a like a a secondary annoyance about some of his movies, I guess, but you know, I can get past it. You're talking about like the details and Marcus, you mentioned that this, this movie was filmed pretty much the whole thing in the UK. And even though it takes place in New York. So what did they do? They built a replica of Greenwich village on a soundstage. Like all those New York scenes where he's walking around Greenwich village. It's a studio. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, he he sent workmen to Manhattan to measure street widths. I mean, <laughs> he's he is crazy. The the interior of Bill and Alice's New York apartment is also it's an exact replica of the apartment that he and his wife Christine lived in during the 1960s. It, yeah, funny. I mean, no wonder this movie, which has like no special effects in it, you know, had a 65 million dollar budget, <laughs> like. <laughs> They could have shot this for like twenty million if they had actually just been in New York, right? And I think a full year of post production and editing, I think, as well, after it was after the initial filming was completed. All right. Well, you want to switch to cast? Sure. Yeah, let's talk about the cast. Yeah, so uh let's talk about Tom Cruise as Dr. William Harford, which is uh, this performance maybe I'll ask it this way. Is this a really good performance or is this a unusually weird performance is it a bad performance how would you characterize this i would say it's a good performance but it's not necessarily intended i think kubrick got what he wanted from tom cruise so i would say in that regard it's a good performance i don't know if it's great acting but it's hard to uh it's very oddly understated and he he plays the the character he's supposed to play well right he, he's kind of a doofus he's kind of dopey throughout he kind of doesn't have a clue and Cruise plays that well. Is it intentional? Is it just Tom Cruise looking out of place? Is it, you know, I think it's hard to say. It's not an Oscar winning performance, but it's also like, it's what was needed for the film. And Kubrick got it. Yeah. I, mean, what I, I mean, I think puppet master, that's the word that comes to mind when I think about like Cruise's performance here, right? Which is like Kubrick having fun, poking him with a stick, 
putting him in positions where he is going to be potentially personally uncomfortable and that will translate to how his character is acting on the screen. I really think that's what's going on here. I mean, this it's a very unusual performance. I, I mean, I think it's engaging and it's interesting, but it's interesting to watch both as what the character is doing, but also kind of what the actor Tom Cruise is doing and experiencing. I don't know. It's I, I find this genuinely fascinating. <laughs> I would say that if this was a different director, I don't know. I'd say it was like a totally weird Tom Cruise performance. Well, he's miscast but, potentially, right? But no, I don't know about that. It's just, it's it seems like a weird performance. But then I think about Nicole Kidman and her performance. And I think about like Todd Field. I, I think this is just Kubrick pulling the strings. Like this is what he wants. Yeah. Because like I said, I, I all of the performances seem very staged in some way that, and, and it just, it doesn't quite seem like a realistic conversation happening between two people. There's something a little bit off about it. Um, just not what they're saying, but how they're saying it. They, they have, it's interesting because while they're married, they as characters in this film have no chemistry whatsoever. I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think it's very, strange well, chemistry as a, as a sort of the husband and wife and they're, you know, they're very, and, and I understand that it's also about, you know, that could be a commentary on, you know, marriage and the interpersonal politics and all that kind of stuff. But, it, but they don't seem like they are, uh, that they want to be together. That's right. And, and I know that, that, I mean, their marriage dissolves soon after this. So I don't know, you know, that's what the question is. And there was lots of stuff. You can go back and read articles about how like Kubrick just basically push their marriage over the edge for his own personal entertainment. <laughs> so, you know, I don't think that's true, but, uh, that. <laughs> but they don't necessarily, they don't seem natural together. And I know that that works well for the film. I just wonder how much of it was beyond the film, I guess. It's, it's, those are some of the questions that I start asking myself as I'm watching this movie. As soon as they get to the party, <laughs> like Nicole Kidman's dancing with uh, some suave gentleman and Tom Cruise is walking around with these like, two models on his arm. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. It's yeah. like they have, they have great chemistry with, all these other, other people. characters, other people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's. I mean, that's the thing. So it's kind of like you know, and then that's that's where you could, you could get back to. Okay, this is somewhat of an indictment on you know marriage or the concept of marriage or the you know the the, yeah. the personalities that people need to try and adopt to try to make, get through the marriage and all that. So I don't know. So let me ask one question: Who, What's your one favorite uh, favorite Tom Cruise role? Who be your favorite character, or favorite person? Um. Hard to say, really. God, it's so many, so many movies. I will say I really that like him as an actor. I, I, I do too. I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to just go out on a limb here and say that maybe I think his best performance for me was in uh, Magnolia. Oh. I, hmm. he, I think he's fantastic. I think he should have won an Oscar for that, actually. He got nominated, right? I think so. Like, I don't like Born on the Fourth of July. I just... Yeah, I, just I don't, don't like, like that. Movie. Well, that, maybe that's a, that's a depressing movie, but I would say that that's probably his best overall performance, personally. Yeah. I think he was nominated for that one too. Yeah. Oh, but, the color of money. That's yeah, that's really, my favorite. That's Vincent. really good. So he's, good. I love him as Vincent. Yeah, I mean, he's great yeah, as that. You know, kind of the the cocky kid in yeah. that movie, the and the energy that he carries. I mean, yeah. obviously, he's great in all the action stuff in terms of, um, you know, Top Gun and obviously the Mission Impossible series and all that. Uh, he's demonstrated some interesting comedic chops, by the way, in Tropic Thunder. So I'll give him some credit for that. That was a that was a pretty good moment. Um, true, true. Also, Jerry Maguire, I think is he's great. That's one of my favorite Tom Cruise movies. 
And that's his third uh, nomination too. Oh, well, there you go. I'm hitting all the all the high notes. Magnolia, here. Jerry Maguire, and um, the Born in the Fourth. But I don't like that movie. <laughs> let me let me ask you a question. Um, what would you think if this movie, instead of Cruz Kidman, it was Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger? I actually think that could be that, that could be pretty. That would have been interesting, honestly, because I think that they. I almost wonder if it would have been better is not the right word but at least the the chemistry between the two of them in terms of alec baldwin and kim basinger probably would have felt more natural i think than kidman and cruz on screen so this the studio definitely they wanted to have a movie star in this movie because like he hadn't had like a movie star star in his movies for quite some time and so that's why this whole thing came up and then of course alec baldwin kim basinger married that would have been an interesting watch i have to say it's so hard to like because we rewatched uh, Hunt for an October with uh, Baldwin, and then, but I, it's so hard to divorce him from his Jack Donahue. I, I know. <laughs> I was thinking <laughs> like, the same thing. He's so like that character really like took over his whole personality. Like your any any involvement of him. You know who Kubrick's first choice was for the film, right? No. Oh yeah, Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford. Yeah. So can you imagine Harrison Ford Flockhart. making this movie? <laughs> Harrison Ford would have yeah. been. That would have been a very strange film as well but i don't know I'm, I'm the idea of actually having harrison ford in a kubrick film and see what happens would be pretty interesting love to see the results on that well he got harrison ford because he, he got bill har ford i think that's actually how he came up with the name oh interesting how oh, funny uh maybe we should wrap up the cast so nicole kidman what would you like to say about her performance here she's fantastic she looks great she like i think she's wonderful in it her scene dancing with the uh, Hungarian gentleman is fantastic. She is so good. She plays tipsy so well. I don't who did it better, Melanie Griffith in um, Working Girl, in, in Working Girl, or Nicole Kidman in <laughs> Eyes Wide Shut. I, I'm not sure. The Kidman does a great, great job with it. Yeah, I think she's the MVP of this movie in terms of acting. Personally, I think she's at the top. Yeah, the only problem I'd say she's not in it enough. Like it's it's more focused on Bill. Yeah, I I, I think you're right. So the only other people that I would mention, I guess, so Sidney Pollack is uh, an interesting character in this as Victor Ziegler. Um, it's AKA Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> it, like AKA somebody who is just, um, I mean, this is actually, I mean, you could make a case that he's a pretty menacing figure in this movie, or at least a pretty um, what? disreputable human being, I guess. I don't think you have to make a case for it, do you? Like. It seems I, pretty. I, I interesting. I never even thought about it that way. I, I think he's the one person in this movie who's like grounded in reality. Like he right, just calls it, it like it is. Like you know, but, it, but it's his reality that, and it's also you know his reality of sort of like you know fuck the little people. I'm gonna just gonna you know the 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 scene with obviously where he goes up to her and, and the you know the hookers in the bathroom and the party and the you know sort of the dispassionate nature with which he's you know, kind of talking about that sequence, it's it, that, I mean, that makes him a pretty disgusting human being. I mean, Kubrick does a good job in just his mannerisms to make him a pretty horrible person. Interesting. I never really thought about it that way. I just sort of figured, well, this is what rich white guys do, the the rich and powerful. Although I, I always wondered, like, first of all, I, I have to say, I love Sidney Pollack in this movie. Like, that's one of my favorite scenes. Um, but you're right. Like, He's just sort of like very dispassionate about it. Yeah. And it's like, oh, oh shit. Like, well, she, she OD'd. Go grab the doctor and bring him up here. And 
let's get this sorted out. I, I would hate for her to like actually die in my bathroom. <laughs> but also, who bangs a hooker in your own house while you're having a Christmas well, let's, party? Well, I have that question. Let's, when, we get to the, <laughs> when, we get, when we get to the run through, let's talk about that. So just let's close out okay. the cast. So Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the other person that I would mention is, um, not sure how to pronounce his name, but uh, Rade Serbazia. So uh, I will tell you, maybe you can hear this. It is Rade. Rade Serbazia. Rada Sebergia. So what's funny is that obviously he shows up as the costume owner and he becomes a, you know, he obviously is a very disreputable human being as well. Um, but what's funny about that guy is that he's also the bad guy terrorist in so many movies. <laughs> and so, he's always playing the Russian villain. <laughs> exactly. So when you see him, when you see him, you're like, oh, that guy's definitely a KGB operative. There's no way he's running a costume shop. Like that's my immediate thought when I see him. <laughs> you, totally right. He's an underground KGB agent operating out of New York. That was, that's, uh, so that's good, uh, good I, call. Good yeah, call. I do like him though, as an actor, he's always compelling. He's fun to watch. Yeah. Great, great hair and beard. He's a total that guy. Yeah. Love him. Um, all right, so should we uh, get to opening questions? I've kind of actually covered several of my opening questions. So I, the only question I guess I have that remains in terms of just as a general question is, is this a comedy? Because there are several <laughs> articles you can read online that basically try to spin that basically Kubrick never got off of the angle he was taking originally, which was to film this as a comedy, and that some of the actions of the characters in terms of them acting like doofuses, for example, it's actually meant to elicit humor. I don't necessarily see it that way. What, do you guys have an opinion there? I didn't no. find it. No. If it's a comedy, it's, it fails even more. <laughs> There's nothing funny in it. Yeah. I mean, maybe like the last line of the movie is, yeah, is but, the only thing. But So that, that was one of my questions. What do you think of the last line of the movie? So just for our listeners, in case you forgot, um, they're in the toy store at the end. And you know, there is something very important that we need to do as soon as possible. It was predictable to a certain degree. Really? So, predictable? Yeah. yeah I, I guessed what that deadline, because you're like, what was that? You're like, that. Like, oh, I, I was very surprised. And let's yet, get it on. I didn't think she said fuck. Dave, what do you think? Uh, well, I think it's the way to sort of reinforce the idea that he's clueless when it comes to female sexuality and he's not getting the job done is really what she's telling him there. So I think when she's saying fuck, she's saying, fuck me the way I want to be fucked as opposed to the way that you're currently doing it. I think that's basically the message that she's delivering at that point. Yeah, I think it's not like, she doesn't say make love. She says fuck. So I think you're totally right. Right. She's like, I want to, you know, I want to express my sexuality. I want to get after it. I want to get my own pleasure. And, you know, so step up, Bill. His ideas about sexuality are very, it seemed to be very outdated, but now. Draconian. You know, I read a few things and, and, well, maybe things haven't really changed that much. Well, the, yeah, I did. I did read one article where they were there was an interview with Kubrick, and uh, and he was talking to the screenwriter and saying, "I want to adopt this, uh, adapt this 1926, you know, novella." And um, the screenwriter said, "I don't think that would be relevant for today." And Kubrick basically challenged him on that point and said, "I think it's completely relevant." I think it's funny the uh, the telling of the the two video clips on the IMDb listing sums up if you can see that Nicole's seductive and Tom just clueless yeah (laughs) i don't get it (laughs) what do you want (laughs) that's i mean that's one other way to look at this is as there are so many glances of nicole kidman or her character looking at her husband and the energy that's there is like oh you're a fucking moron right and that 
<laughs> that might also just be the standard interaction between husbands and wives based on my experience. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so. <laughs> uh, I, I have a couple of questions. Um, uh, do you think that Mandy was actually murdered as retribution or sacrifice for Bill's intrusion into the ritual? Uh, I don't think so. No. Okay. I don't think so either. Yeah, I, I took Sidney Pollock's uh, or his uh, character's explanation, you know, pretty much at face value. Yeah. I don't buy these conspiracy theories. I think it is what it is. She OD'd. She was a junkie. Yep. Makes sense to me. All right. Well, uh, Colin, you want to hit us with a plot summary? The film follows the sexually charged adventures of Dr. Bill Harford, Tom Cruise, who is shocked when his wife, Alice, Nicole Kidman, reveals that she had contemplated having an affair a year earlier. He then embarks on a night-long adventure during which he infiltrates a masked orgy of an unnamed secret society. All right. I'm not sure it's sexually charged adventure. That's the, the, the one thing I would disagree with on your summary, but I, I get what you're going for. It's more like each adventure involves sex in some way, but it's, it's just not very erotic or sexy. The only ones I, I would say would be his encounter with Domino and then also with Domino's roommate. Yeah, I would agree that, that there's a, a different level of energy there, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I don't f- find the orgy titillating, no pun intended, um, <laughs> you know, uh, like whatsoever, right? I mean, it, it's no, interesting because no. it's the amount of graphic nudity that's put in front of you and uh, I could not be less aroused. So I know. It's so weird. It's, it's so weird. It's interesting. Yeah, it's it's an accomplishment, Kubrick. <laughs> I mean, it, it literally, it's just like a bunch of naked supermodels walking around in G-strings and carnival masks, and I couldn't be more bored. Uh, it's it's odd. It's interesting, yeah. Yeah, but maybe, I, I assume that's what he was going for? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I have many questions. My, my head is spinning <laughs> after watching this movie, honestly. <laughs> okay, yeah. all right, well, let's get to it. All right, let's, uh, let's jump into it. So... Um, so one thing, just in terms of the intro, that I think is interesting. So, you know, it starts off, they're going to a party, and he asks his wife, you know, where his wallet is. So I, one thing I think that's interesting is that's the start of this idea that there's there are sort of levels of servitude in this movie, right? Because you have the that upper ruling class that has their private doctor that pulls them to come to them. And then you have, you know, Bill, who, as he's going around the city, he's, you know, using money to, like, when he, you know, tears the hundred and gives it to the cab driver, it's, you know, you're working for me and I'm using my money and influence to control you. So it sets up a little bit of the dynamic, I think, maybe two things. One is it's just showing that, uh, you know, that there's a, it's kind of the start of the relationship in terms of maybe what he sees, you, or you could read into it that he, you know, sees that his wife is there to, not there to serve him necessarily, but is, I don't know, a, a lower, at a lower level in the relationship potentially. I don't know. That was my my quick read on some of that opening interaction. Um, the other part that I thought was interesting is that, you know, she asks about her hair. It's like, how does my hair look? And he doesn't even look and he answers her. So that, that was a good example of the fact that he is kind of detached and not necessarily engaged with her. So I think that opening scene in my mind is kind of set up to showcase a little bit of their interaction as a married couple. And I, I don't think you necessarily walk away thinking that these are two people that are really, I think, emotionally, truly intertwined with each other. That was my take on that opening scene. That was a lot more than I had, but really? <laughs> <laughs> but everything you say makes perfect sense. You look at Nicole Kidman in this movie, and she's like absolutely stunning, and yet for him it's just like old hat. But this is marriage, right? That's sort of what happens in 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 a marriage is that everything becomes sort of rote. 
Hey, Emily, by the way, I still love you. Just, I, I, you know. I'm, I'm not <laughs> saying my marriage. Yeah, so. <laughs> uh, and then, so then it goes to the, switches to the Christmas party. And one thing about the Christmas party in general is the way that it's lit is just pretty, it's pretty amazing to look at. Just when, you know, when, when the camera's going through and you have the, I mean, the, the repeated theme of Christmas lights and how Christmas lights are used for the lighting in this movie, I think is really interesting. The, you know, the huge chandelier with all the lights on it. I just think the, you know, the lighting and the Christmas party and sort of the overall aesthetic that gets created is interesting. Um, there, it does feel like there's a little bit of uh, particulate matter in the air. Like this whole movie feels there's a little bit of like a tinge of fog, it feels like to me, which I guess is kind of maybe trying to drive home the dream state. But that's just one thing that I noticed when you know, hmm. they're kind of going through the Christmas party. I don't think I ever noticed particulate matter or it's fog. Like so, it's like soft lighting or, or it's, you know, it's well, kind of... Well, that's the thing. A, it's all... All of this soft lighting used to create a very dreamy quality to it, which I loved. Yeah, there's, I guess, what would you say? It's almost like, you know, the soft lighting creates that sort of a haze. Yeah, it's a haze. Yeah. yeah. And it's very beautiful. And like, it's, I would love to attend that party, by the way, just, just for that <laughs> fact. Then Nicole meets the Hungarian guy and she's standing there and, and he walks up and his move is to just grab her glass and drink it in front of her. So that was my question is like, um, what's going on there exactly? I mean, it's... This guy knows how to score. That's what's going on. Yeah. So that's a, that's a bold move, my man. Right. So the idea is that, you know, it's like, okay, we're swapping saliva already. Is that what the, uh, is that the undertones of what he's going for there? No, this is a man who says, like, I'm going to take what I want. Yeah. He's and he wants her. Tall, suave, and he, he nearly European. gets her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and his dialogue, that's the other thing that I like about this scene is his dialogue. You know, he says um, one of the necessities of marriage is that it requires deception for both parties. So, you know, he's actually, and this is where it's kind of like, okay, then, you know, this falling on the intro scene, I'm like, oh, there's more of a marriage commentary running through this movie than I originally thought. So I mean, that's a whole movie. It's the, yeah, exploring that dynamic, right? Yeah, and, and there's the sexual part of this as well, because he says that, you know, women only get married or used to only get married to lose their virginity and then to also then unlock their, their ability to then have sex with everybody else. Like, that, that's the angle he's taking when he's having the conversation <laughs> with her, which is interesting. This is a really good scene just to watch flirtation, but it also, it, like, I actually felt very uncomfortable watching it, knowing that she's a married woman and she's getting hit on very hard. Right. And she's, like, tipsy. I just felt like she's very vulnerable and he's like ready to pounce i mean come on he's european right he's go he's (laughs) he's he's going for it (laughs) american women (laughs) look out for those europeans (laughs) they're coming for your window yeah absolutely but i love this guy because he's literally he's just like ripped out of an old movie he's just like this suave european lothario who's i think appears maybe a little bit past his prime but still there's a danger in that whole scene yeah well then you flip it and the same thing's going on on the other side with the two girls flirting with uh with bill and i was much more comfortable in that scene (laughs) 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 but i think that says a lot about again men's view of sex and how we view women thinking about sex yeah well i so two questions here so one is uh the close talking there's lots of close talking in this, right? When, you know, the Hungarian, I mean, obviously he is, you know, sort of, you know, miming, coming in for a kiss kind of with some of their, their back and forth conversation there. Yeah, well, it's, he's, he's being extremely intimate with a woman that he does not know. Right. But then the women, when they're talking to Bill also, if you, if you look at that, it's like they're leaning in really close to his face as well. So just the, I just thought that's an interesting choice because people don't really talk that way in real life. 
right? Yeah, I, I can't imagine you're at a party and you just meet somebody and you're leaning in three to four inches from their face. So uh, unless you're Trinity and you're meeting Neo for the first time, but it was very loud in there. <laughs> Very, very loud in that nightclub. By the way, I love that from the pot. You're, Most guys do. <laughs> That's pretty fun. <laughs> so then, but I did have a question here. So, what do you think? Like, so Bill is walking. The, you know, he has the two women on his arm. He has this big shit-eating grin on his face. It, uh, what are they saying about Bill's character? There is he? Is he just clueless? Because you know he's he's gonna he's just caught up in the moment. Is he just super horny for somebody besides his wife? I mean, what? message are they sending with or what's the evaluation of bill as he has the two women on his arm i thought he was like somewhat clueless and like oh what is what's going on how do i i think he was like hoping that it could progress he's like oh wait wait what are you talking about where are we going like he wasn't sure how to like what he should do and like he had that like kind of right so what am i going to do here like so like, how do me, i get away with this yeah part of me thinks right. like this is also like just a condemnation of you know this is a horny man who doesn't know what to do with his horniness or he's like incompetent because that's kind of the pattern that follows through the rest of the film. Right. I mean, he, oh, for sure. he you know, he yeah. gets, he's edged throughout the rest of the movie, but he never comes to completion. So uh, pretty much. I mean, maybe, I, I don't know. I just sort of see it as, you know, he's also flirting very hard with these girls, but they're the ones who are actually flirting very hard with him. Yeah, so they initiated They're, they're both like in this, progressing. It. they're both put in the same situation where these other people are flirting with them. And it's like, well, what are you going to do? I feel like she knew, like, she was like, oh, no, I'm going to catch myself. This is not going to happen. And then she disengaged from the Hungarian. Right. Whereas... You know, these girls are leading him upstairs, and I think he was going to go. Um, oh, yeah. He but was, then he, he didn't got, get he interrupted. Got saved. He, was like, he got saved by Ziegler. You know, I think he was, there was a, definitely a chance where somebody opens up the wrong bedroom door upstairs, and his pants are around his ankles. And <laughs> really? he's like, oh, I was, what, what am I doing? See, I'm not sure. I, just, I don't know that I had the same read. Like, I, I kind of thought that he was still going to chicken out, like, if, you know, even if it came to he, it. I, I agree. I mean, I, I think, think he ultimately he was he was just probably going to go see how far it could go and then probably pull out at the last second. No pun intended. <laughs> no, no pun. <laughs> um, but, you know, hey, look, you got two beautiful models on your arm. I mean, that's a, that's a huge ego boost. And plus, you know, it's just it is fun to flirt. Right. But. Yeah, they. I think they wanted to go all the way. They were definitely DTF. Okay. He, him, I'm not so sure. Well, and then this does shift to him being summoned to the bathroom where he walks in and, you know, there's Ziegler and, or there's the, the hookers there. And he's like, oh, yeah, she shot something, you know, heroin, speedball, could be a combination of cocaine. But the just the dispassionate nature with this guy, the way that he's evaluating it and the fact that you know, she's passed out and they haven't even thought to maybe throw some clothes over her or any kind of a covering over her. She's just a piece of meat there to serve him. But I have lots of questions yeah. about the party itself. So he, he has a wife, doesn't he? <laughs> doesn't, isn't that who they, they meet when they are when uh, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, yeah. when they walk in? Yeah, that's it. Um, yeah, that's his wife. So how is he upstairs just banging a hooker in the bathroom at a, at a Christmas party? Yeah, that does logistically seems challenging. I, I'm guessing there's probably 20 rooms in that mansion. Yeah, so you think more than enough time to duck out and just bang a hooker really quick, I guess, is what you're thinking at, well, at, at a Christmas party that you're hosting? Yeah, like, look, he's this is the power elite, right? He can do whatever he wants. Like, I think it just says a lot about him as a powerful person because he's literally doing this in his own home while he's throwing a party downstairs. 
I mean, wow. Well, so uh, let me ask you this. So do you think, uh, I guess one of the questions I had was, do you think that his wife knows that he does this shit and he's like, he's going to do what he's going to do and his wife either accepts I'm it or not? I'm 98% sure that the answer is yeah. yes. Yeah. Okay. Because that kind of goes back I, to although the... Although maybe not very happy about it if it's like at home during a Christmas party. And yet, <laughs> honestly, she's probably not really keeping tabs on him. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then after the party, so it shifts back to the apartment. They do, there's a quick scene of Tom Cruise watching football and drinking a beer. So it did make me wonder if there was a little bit of a commentary on like, oh, dumb husband <laughs> watching football and drinking a beer. I don't know. Just a moment. Side note on that one. Apparently Stanley Kubrick himself was a huge NFL fan. So I really, maybe, yeah, he was, he was a huge NFL fan. Apparently he had people interesting yeah, tape games and send it to him and uh, who knew. Um, and then from here, this is where it transitions to, you know, they go upstairs and Alice decides to roll the joint. And let me ask you a question. So who is, who plays inebriated worse? Michael Bean as a drunk in Navy SEALs or Tom <laughs> Cruise playing stoned in this movie? Because I don't think Tom Cruise's stoned performance here is, is good at all. I mean, maybe actually both of them. Maybe this is like some weird weed that they got a hold of. I don't know. Maybe... Somebody sprinkled something else in there. But Tom Cruise's <laughs> stone performance does not work for me at all. I agree with you, but I think Michael Bean is still the champion. Yeah, Michael Bean's <laughs> his drunk performance in Navy SEALs is something to behold. Yeah. And, and so what do you think about, what is it about this scene that is that you find interesting? I mean, the, the big takeaway here is obviously this is where he as a husband gets his you know mind blown by the fact that oh, his wife might actually have sexual agency and that he can't take it. He just can't deal with it. Yeah, no, it, it is, yeah. And all throughout this, it's just like he's so naive about his wife's or just women in general about their sexual desires. And, you know, she asks him if he fucked those models and he acts like very wounded. Like, oh, how could you ever think that? And then when she tells him that the Hungarian wanted sex, he just sort of like laughs it off like, huh, well, that wasn't going to happen because you'd never do that, right? Yeah. Like he, he just doesn't believe it at all. And that's what sets off this, this argument. And again, like just don't even try to win this argument because you're, you're going to lose. Well, it's not even an argument. It's just basically highlighting the fact that he's a total fucking dipshit when it comes to this particular topic. Yeah, and, and like everything he says, he's just digging a hole for himself. Oh, men only talk to me because I'm a beautiful woman. It was like, when she said that, I'm just like, dude, just be like, you know what? I'm going to bed. Good night. I got a heavy stick here. Pull up, pull up, pull up. <laughs> God damn, this hole's getting deep. But let me ask you a question. Why, what's the point of her telling him that story? Is it to shock him into into upping his game on the sex front? Is it uh, Is it to humiliate him and gain power in the relationship? I mean, what's the... What's the actual, what, what is her intent there? I mean, obviously she's high, so maybe she's not thinking everything through. But I think she wants to shock him into seeing her as more than just a wife or something. Like, I am a person too. I think it's more along that regard of like, hey, like you're clueless. Right. Like Women, you, you think like, you have it all figured out, but yeah. you're actually like so clueless. And so that, yeah, that was to shock him. Like literally, he's like taken aback. And so much so that he has to like retreat from 
from this whole situation. And, you know, luckily he, he gets a phone call and has to go visit his patient who died. Well, I know that's the result of the story that she's telling, but what do you think her character's intent is in terms of what does she want to occur differently after that? I think she wants him to see her or who she actually is, which is a sexual I being. Am, I have, a, yeah, and I have sexual desires and it's not just for you. And he says, we both know what men are like, you know, and it's all about like, you know, like, well, men can do this and we have fantasies and, but, but women know it's, uh, it's, it's evolution. And she's like, no, this is all bullshit. And, you know, like, I, I see where you're going with it. You know, has their, their marital bed gone cold? And right. she's like, I don't know. I don't, I never re- really sort of got that out of it, but potentially, well, I, I, there's, a, I mean, I think it's two things, right? One is her opportunity to express her frustration that he's so fucking clueless when it comes to her sexuality and, and kind of slap him in the face a little bit or smack him upside the head. I, that makes perfect sense to me. But I guess the, my question is, you know, does she have a, an aim beyond that in terms of she wants him to, you know, restart the engine or take a different approach or this fact that he would then begin to view her differently could result in more sexual pleasure for her because he ups his game. That's my question, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know either. So, yeah. Uh, so he does get the call. And then I, one of the questions I had here is, is it, is it a good idea to show up to a house called baked off your ass? <laughs> so, <laughs> because, you know, he rolls in. So maybe depending on how far, well, the, how long the cab ride is, but I think in this situation, it's okay because uh, the patient's already dead. No, that's true, actually. Yeah. yeah I guess, I guess you can't screw up much at that point. And you're, and that's a good point. I always just found this to be just a very strange scene. It's, I mean, the, the whole declaration of love thing is, is just definitely a bit off the rails there for sure. It's a very awkward time to say this. I, I just, what was the commentary? Like, what was Kubrick trying to get across here? Isn't it directly mirroring the whole situation, like the argument they just had? You know, Bill believes that Alice is going to be faithful to the marriage and she has fantasies for somebody else. Well, that's exactly what's happening here, right? So Marion has fantasies for Bill but she's going to go get rolled along into the marriage because that's what she thinks she could do, even though, you know, she doesn't want to go to Michigan, but she's going to go with him anyways. But she has fantasies for somebody else. So it's a, it's a direct parallel to the Bill and Alice relationship. And so I, I think that's just basically... So, so what, she's ready to actually drop everything, throw it all away. Yeah, absolutely. Which, I don't know. I sort of don't buy it. I mean, yes, maybe, but I don't think it's the same thing because I think the person with power in that relationship is Marion because it seems like her family is pretty rich and Carl is not. And so I think she can basically, there's not a lot of risk for her to throw everything away. No, but Bill's a medical doctor. This guy has a PhD. So he's a, he's a doctor. I I mean, it's a a direct parallel. I get what you're saying. I get, yeah, I get what you're saying, but uh, so maybe that's it. Well, if that's it, it doesn't really do that much for me. It's, to me, no, I, I you could have cut this part of this movie out, and I would be fine with it. I, yeah, I think that. I don't think it adds I think much. The same thing. I completely agree. I'm not. I'm not saying that there's anything okay. deep here. I just think that it's. I, I guess the for me the observation was that they're replicating what Bill and Alice are doing, and and I'm not sure if the the point was to say that. See, this is the pattern. This is what's happening all over the place in terms of you know marriage, sort of the the rote routineness of everything, and everyone's having the same problem, and that their spouse doesn't really understand their true sexual fantasies or whatever, but. Okay. Um, I agree. Okay. It's, I don't really necessarily think that it adds much. So Bill right now is then, you know, he's all up in his head about sex and he needs to go out and start wandering the city. So he comes across a group of guys that they're a full block away from him and they start basically, you know, using their bigoted commentary in terms of calling him gay and they tell him to go back to San Francisco. So what what's the point on, because here's the thing, like this, 
between this, between Nick and between the hotel owner or the hotel desk clerk's reaction to Cruz, those are three very distinct elements where the film is choosing to represent him as if other characters, or not, not the, the interaction with Nick because that's him doing it, but those three things taken together, you could say, are all elements of them trying to indicate that Bill may have some, you know, some sort of a uh, representation of homosexuality to other people. I'm not really sure how to characterize that, but like, why did these guys think that he is gay a full block away? And, and what's the point of this scene? Um, I had the same question, but I, I guess it's because here's a good-looking, well-dressed guy walking the streets of Greenwich Village at night. Um, so they just assumed that he was cruising cruising for other men yeah i mean I, I had, they're also I had, they're also just fucking idiots well i was, I was gonna say so that was i had t- i had two kind of you know potential reads on it one was just you know here's a, just a it's a great example of sort of the you know the hyper exaggerated male machismo you know these are just doofus dickheads that are just kind of continuing the theme of clueless men right and and so they just th- there is nothing really there and then the second one is that for some reason, he's putting off some sort of a vibe and they're interpreting that and they're actually trying to roll that into, or Kubrick was trying to roll that into a commentary in the movie. I'm not sure what it is, honestly. I, I, don't, th- I don't think it's a ladder. No, I think it is a red handkerchief out of his uh, back pocket. <laughs> could, could be. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, what is oh, interesting boy. about that though is then he keeps walking and then, you know, obviously he gets uh, picked up by, I'm sorry, what's her name again in the movie? Domino. Domino. In like, was it two minutes, right? He goes from somebody perceiving that he might be gay to, of course, somebody perceiving that he's not. So I don't know. I just think that it's an interesting transition as, as he's walking along. By the way, I had no idea that Domino was a hooker until the, the question of money came up. You didn't think the way that she was dressed, like with the fur coat and the nylons and the boots and all that, that didn't tip you off that she might be a hooker? Maybe she just wasn't dressed sleazy enough. I don't know. I mean, I thought she looked great. I thought she was just like, hey, here's some like really attractive guy who's walking down the street. Maybe I'll uh, hit on him. Yeah. So, f- so for some reason, I did not get that at, at, at first. Um, and then let me ask you a question on this one. So do you think he would have gone through with it had his wife not called? That's my question here. Yeah, no. I do. Oh, you do? Yeah, I do. I think he still would have chickened out because he was. Yeah, I think so. He was pretty, he was pretty gun shy. Like when they were, when he even was in the kitchen, even when they were talking about the money. Yeah, you're probably right. It's the same thing. He would have gone as far as he could take it and then probably chickened out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's a bit of a, uh, I mean, chicken shit isn't really the right word, but he's somewhat afraid of sex is what it feels like. Maybe. But yeah, I mean, obviously, if he really wanted to do it, he could have just said like, oh, no, I'm, you know, they need me here longer. And so don't expect me home for a while. Right. So yeah, ultimately, he would he would have found a way to chicken out. Well, he did check yeah, it out. That because, kind of rocked him into his, into reality again, right? Like that was his wake up call. And then yeah, he's like, well, "Oh, I'm not I, going home. I'm going to go to a piano bar instead. Listen to some. Listen to uh, 45 seconds of jazz at the. the <laughs> I know, right? Great, <laughs> just a, great, great show. <laughs> just just as the band is closing things out. So okay, um, he's in the piano bar. He gets uh, you know, and this is where he learns about the. Uh, can we not call it a piano bar? It's a jazz club. Jazz club, sorry. Um, so Fidelio. Any thoughts there? Anything Anything you want to talk about in terms of uh, the significance of that as a password? What's the dealio? <laughs> What's the de- Fidelio. <laughs> What's the Fidelio? Well, it's a Beethoven symphony, right? Are you saying that it's supposed to sound like something? You know, I mean, there are several moments where 
there there is there are written notes that are passed in this movie, right? It's the note that he gets at the gate. It's the the handwritten note that you know Nick writes on the napkin. And if you're assuming that Kubrick's obsessive filmmaking, right, which is maybe Kubrick was just playing a joke on everybody. He's like, I'm not really that guy. He's like, that's just really my reputation. But um, I just Fidelio. Anything anything that you found or anything else about that scene? I guess that you want to mention. Well. Fidelio is definitely something that I, I always think about when I think about this movie. For whatever reason, it's a, it's a, it's a good password. I, I just like it. <laughs> it's a um, good password. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I thought was, I love when Nick Nightingale says, well, where are you going to get a costume at this hour of the morning? Because <laughs> you know it exactly what I thought of. That's right. Airplane. Airplane 2. Where am I going to find a piece of metal? Here. In space, at this hour. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I actually thought the same thing. That's pretty funny. Of course he did. Head. Yeah. Um, but then I do like he goes. This is where he goes to the costume rental. And one thing I do love here is the uh, so they have. There's a little bit of the the film noir thing going on with him as a detective wandering the city a little bit. Only what he's flashing is his medical credentials. And so I just, I love that, that he keeps flashing his medical credentials like they're a badge again and again throughout I know. this movie. I, I think at one, at one point he actually says, it's okay, I'm a doctor. Yeah, I'm a doctor. <laughs> I just, you can tell me. But, you know, I do think that him going to the costume shop and saying, you know, I'm such and such as doctor and, you know, I need to get you up at midnight so I can rent a costume to go to my orgy. He doesn't know it's an orgy as of yet, but uh, it does show that, you know, Bill thinks that people are... There, there, there's one rung lower, I think, there that he believes is there to serve him a little bit. There's some of the classism that's coming across there, in my opinion. Well, yeah, it's all about the Benjamins. Well, what if it was $200? No, I did have a question. Okay. How, much, how much cash does he carry in his wallet? Because if you went back and added up all the uh, cab rides and you know paying off people and paying the hooker, the dude's got a lot of cash in his wallet. It's just a little walking around money, a little spending money. Nope. Um, by the way, can you really make change for a hundred by ripping it in half? I, I don't think that's how change works. <laughs> if I'm a cab driver and the guy's about to give me a hundred and he tears it in half and wants to offer me half of it now and half later, I'd be like, why don't you give me a real hundred dollar bill and then get the fuck out of my cab? Right. <laughs> well, how about this? So Marcus, you, you actually flashed this cause you sent a screenshot, but what exactly is going on in the corner of the costume shop with those two other guys? What is the scenario that's no playing idea. out there? I have no idea. It makes no sense. I think it's just showing. It ma- makes perfect sense to me. Does it? Yeah. I mean, it, this is like kink. You know, there's these two, I'm going to say like Asian businessmen. They're in New York. They want to like have a good time. They're into kink. You know, they like to dress up. They like to put makeup on, have little sexual fantasies. And oh, big surprise they like young girls and she's she's probably you know like an independent-minded girl she likes sex she wants to maybe her aspiration is to become a sex worker it's you know gives her agency and and money i don't know i'm 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 half joking and then ultimately you know like she's found out by her father but yeah she doesn't really seem like that upset she's immediately starts flirting a bit with um with tom cruise yeah um and then in the end they all come to, you know, a familial business arrangement <laughs> where he's now her pimp, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just commentary on sex work. Now, if that would be the one moment in this movie where I'd go, oh, yeah, this is this is actually kind of a funny moment. 
Well, it was certainly weird. I'm not sure if I would characterize it as funny. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a little more weird. disturbing than, than, than funny, I would say. But um, And then, by the way, I do like the fact that he goes in there and he ends up and he, he perfectly nails the outfit that he should bring to the orgy. Like, he, you know, it's like he, it's a costume, <laughs> right? Can you imagine if like he, he rolled into the orgy with like a Michael Myers mask? <laughs> 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 he went vampire. He's like, he's, he's like wandering, like he's just wandering the halls of the orgy slowly in like Michael Myers mask, and like, like dude, you're killing my wood here. Come on, and like, you know, just, oh my god, <laughs> I think I'm crying. Oh, just, oh my god, that was just such an amazing visual. Just like the slow, like the shape, like slowly moving among the orgy. Like, it was like dude, I'm I'm not comfortable here. <laughs> just. <laughs> <laughs> oh man oh we have to remake this movie right now <laughs> <laughs> but then i guess the other thing is the mask that he ends up uh choosing was apparently apparently it's was it ryan o'neill's face from barry linden that's what that mask is yeah that's what i read i, I watched barry linden recently and i just do not remember where uh, there was a scene where everyone was wearing masks but when i read that they used his face as the mold for that mask and i'm looking at it, i'm like yeah, it actually does kind of look like Ryan O'Neill. Yeah. Um, in terms of the overall orgy itself, I remember one of the things that, you know, before seeing this movie, there was lots of discussion about this being, you know, the sort of the overly graphic and the centerpiece of the film. I have to say, this entire movie, this is probably, the orgy might be my least favorite part. You know, I mean, it, it, it's fine, but it's not, I don't know, it, it just, uh, it feels very... Uh, very, very staged, which it is, obviously, because they're going through, you know, pr- pretend rituals and all that kind of stuff. But well, can we talk about this as two different things? One is there, there's the ritual that takes place. And then there's the orgy part. And then there's the tribunal when he's, you know, unmasked as an intruder, right? Right. So is it or when you talk about it, is it the actual orgy? Or is it the whole this whole scene? Well, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of the um, maybe the, the opening part of it for me where, you know, the, the guy's walking around with the, I forget what you call that thing. that has the, the, Oh, the, the incense. Yeah. The, the incense coming out and just, or, and just all of it. It just, I don't know. It, it seems, I mean, it, it's again, it's really interesting to look at the way that it's shot, but it just, it goes on a long time, I guess is what it feels like to me. It, it feels like it slows the movie down a bit in a way. And then also just walking through the, uh, the uh, mansion too and stuff, just very, it's, yeah, it, it feels just too much. It's plotting a bit yeah. uh, for the action that is happening in terms of, you know, people have, you see people having sex here and there. It just feels very, um, it's, it just feels, it's kind of boring, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's strangely dispassionate, I guess, is uh, what it feels like to me. And, and, and the idea that if you were to say, okay, this is, this is the centerpiece, this is the best part of the movie. I just don't believe that personally. I think, I think the rest of it is more interesting. I think it's probably the most memorable part of the movie. Right. Um, it's also well, yeah. very much uh, a departure from everything else with the lighting and you know there's nothing Christmassy. I actually like the ritual, and I think I mostly like it because well, two things: one, as we discussed earlier, they do the the Kubrick zoom. He does the zoom up to to the balcony, and I just love that shot. And that the mask worn by the the male character. I think it's just very creepy. With, you know, it's with very the, creepy. The, tri- yeah. the tricorn cap, I guess. And then the other thing is that the uh, the music, the music in this yeah. section is called Masked Ball. It's by the the actual composer, a uh, woman by the name of Jocelyn Pook. 
And she took a composition that she had done called Backward Priests, and it features uh, Romanian monks chanting, but it's played backwards. Right. And then she added music to this. And I can't believe how much I love this piece of music. It's very cool. It's, it's haunting, and it sort of makes me want to drop acid. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it really, really takes this scene up to another level. Whereas if you take that music away, it is sort of boring ritual, yeah. even though you got, you know, all these beautiful women who are they're half naked, but there's nothing erotic about it. I think this shows like the Kubrick-esque of it. Like it's beautifully shot, the, the scenes and the set and the like the framing of it and how people are positioned on the screen and how it's all framed up with the music is all like very captivating and interesting to watch just from a visual and like listening, but like moving the story along and it's, it's not, it's not that engaging. Uh, I, I think it just kind of feels flat in that regard. It's a great movie scene, but it's not a great like part of the movie. It doesn't really add all that much. Yeah. That's, I mean, there are some elements. I mean, the score, this is where the, you know, you have the, the single, uh, the, the piano, the score, I'm not sure what that piece of music is called, but where you have like oh, oh. the, you mean with with a single piano yeah. key? Yeah, and that's and yeah. That yeah. I think that particular piece of music is actually very effective at building tension. So I think that that works pretty well. It, it, it's a it makes you that it makes you a little uncomfortable that piece of music. I think it it does, and it's very successful. And I think they always use it when there's some sort of threat. Right when there's yeah. So and, it, it communicates menace. Yeah, I, I really like that as well. Yeah, but then another question. So the the scene where you have, or or the the sequence where the guy on the balcony looks down and sees Tom Cruise walk in and, and knows that he is not, um, you know, he's he's not supposed to be there. So I guess the question is, how did he know? How did that guy know? <laughs> like, is that supposed to is that supposed to be the doctor? Or I'm, I'm sorry, Ziegler. Is that Ziegler looking down at him? I mean, I'm not sure who that guy so, is. So many questions, right? Why are they looking at him? Do they actually know who he is? I think I read something where they know he's an intruder that he doesn't belong there. Well, they do. I mean, they say it like later on. <laughs> um, guy, I think they say it later on, right? That guy guy rolls up in a cab. A cab and and he's, he has the rental receipt for the costume party in his coat pocket. I mean, it's yeah, that, that's yeah. that's pretty good actually. That's that's what yeah. I love the Sydney Pollock scene. It's like you fucking moron. I mean, that's yeah, like, yeah exactly. Good. I feel like. They looked at him because they knew who he was. And also, like, Mandy, she apparently knows who he is, but how? Yeah, like, how? Do you, I mean, like, did she know who he was? Or did she just... And why is she trying to save him if he's... I think the, the all I could come up with was that she's trying to save him. She's warning him to leave because she knows who he is and he helped her. But how does she know who he is? He's got a mask on. I don't know. So many questions. Yeah. I mean, the, the main takeaway for me was that this is just more thematically, it's an overall. So there's, there's a lot of comparisons, obviously, between the Christmas party and the orgy Two sort of, you know, ritualistic gatherings of people, you know, going through the motion, some of the lighting, not, there's no Christmas lighting in the orgy scene, but there's that piece of it. But then all those questions that you just mentioned, it's, it feels very unresolved to me. And, and it's like, why would she potentially even sacrifice herself if it was just a, a doctor that she met in the bathroom for 10 minutes and helped her get get through a potential overdose. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Maybe that's the other reason why I don't think this is my favorite part of the movie because it's just a lot of unresolved questions more than anything else. Yeah, I, it, I it, creates, it creates intrigue, but it doesn't really justify the intrigue, I guess, is kind of the way I think about it. 
Honestly, I think it's they, probably they like to stage these things. Someone saw an opportunity to call out this intruder and put him before like everyone there and humble him and belittle him and make it seem like he's in danger. Right, and this and is then, part of the that's they, part of and, the entertainment for these people, basically. Yeah, exactly. And then yeah. they, somebody like put her up to going and offering herself as a sacrifice. You know, right. none of it's actually real. She was not trying to actually give up her own life to save his. Why? Why would she? Yeah. But it's fun to watch. It's it's fun to watch. It's interesting. I mean, it's visually very engaging, but it's just not my favorite part of the movie. The, like I could I could yeah, envision yeah. them. You know, as he he leaves the room. They all like throw off their masks and just start like laughing hysterically. No, I know, I know. That's I mean that's that's very much that's very much what it felt like. We got that dude. I mean it's like. You know. um, so then you know he goes home and they make a, a kind of a, a big deal about him taking the bag that he has that has the costume and going through the process of hiding it from his wife. Right. So there's a little bit of that that wraps back to the Hungarian commenting about deception being required in marriage. Right. So that that to me is kind of paying off that a little bit. And then, you know, he goes and he wakes up his wife and, you know, she tells this, I, the, this part of it also is like, eh, not my favorite because I don't think Nicole Kidman is selling the, the dream here in terms of the way that she's relaying it to him. And then also, I mean, why exactly, again, like, what's the point of telling your husband this with this level of detail? I mean, it just seems like it's a, she's just like sticking the knife in a little bit and, and twisting it. I mean, is what it feels like to me. I don't know. I agree 100%. In what world do you ever tell your partner the, the most intimate things of your dreams for this type of thing? It's like, well, it's just a dream. Like, what does it actually yeah. mean? And such detail. Like, why tell him this? I mean, what did, what did even that dream mean? I mean, I, I think it meant that she felt shame, but I'm not really sure. Yeah, I, I just don't understand. Like, okay, so you're sort of ashamed by it, but why tell him? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it seems like it's just to hurt him more than anything else, honestly. I mean, or I don't know. It's a. It's a I don't know. It, it didn't make sense to me either. Like, it seemed more spiteful than anything. And and I yeah, also, I, I, truthfully, I mean, I, I think Nicole Kidman does a great job in this movie, but but the laying in bed when she's dreaming, acting, like that part didn't really click to me. That felt very, uh, that felt a little forced, a little fake, a, so. Yeah, not a great dream actor. No, so. Yeah, agreed. So I guess the, and then he goes out the next day, right? So he's convinced that the sacrifice and all that happened. And so he's he's trying to track down his, uh, the Nick, the piano player. Uh, and he goes into hotel and I guess... I have another question here. So why do you have Alan Cummings so immediately react to him in, you know, in, in uh, an excited way? And I don't know, to me, this is more than just being attracted to the guy, the way that he's putting it out there. It feels like the energy he's putting out there is he accepts or he uh, believes there's a possibility that Bill might be interested. Would you agree with that? I mean, I don't know. I honestly, I have no idea. I don't, I, don't, I didn't really even take it to be, I don't know. I just never really got that. Although, as again, maybe it was just that they were trying to he, Kubrick was trying to show uh, a straight man's reaction to maybe thinking that a gay man is might be flirting with him or coming onto him a bit, and how that would make him feel uncomfortable. But I honestly don't know. I, I just it's a, it's quite, it's kind of a weird scene to me. It's a, it's an interesting scene because Bill the character is not he's not reacting. As if he's really uncomfortable with the 
Okay. So I, I think I need to watch that scene again because I just don't really know yeah. what's going on. I don't know. I, th- I thought it was, like, what, I thought well, what do you think's happening? Well, this is, I was trying to figure out, is there some sort of a subtext about Bill that is being thrown out there? Yes or no. And, and again, the, the three scenes that I put together that form some sort of an opinion along those lines, you know, one is the way that he reacts to Nick with such energy and effervescence at the party. And, and the fact that he touches him physically like three or four times, right? It's like they're slapping each other's, you know, shoulders and chests and all that kind of stuff. So you have that, you have the fact that he's walking on the street and he gets, uh, you know, I mean, it's like the guys that are block away and they start referring to him as being gay. And then you have this interaction in the hotel and Bill seems relatively comfortable with the conversation. So you put those three things together and is Cooper trying to say something here or not? Truthfully, I don't know. I just, it's an interesting observation is maybe... Uh, the right place to leave it. <laughs> so I think I don't think he's like trying to imply anything. I think he's just trying to show another side of sexuality. Not that Bill's challenged by it, but just like he's not confused himself. I don't think so. Well, he's, he's not uncomfortable, and I, there's different ways I yeah. think that you could interpret that. Right? One is you know he's a medical doctor. He's probably seen it all, and you know is is just relatively you know just comfortable with just the. Like the overall concept of sexuality, but and so there's no, it doesn't really mean anything to him, I guess. Um, or that it's just, he's just comfortable with it in other ways. I don't know. I feel like maybe Kubrick just threw this stuff in there, uh, specifically with, uh, you know, the guys accusing him on the street of being gay or, and maybe this with a hotel desk clerk as just a, some sort of, well, I need some way to recognize something about sexual identity, but. I don't buy that there might be, he might be saying something about Bill's sexual identity. No, I, I, w- I wasn't necessarily going that far, but maybe just that he was um, maybe just clueless about sexuality in general. It's kind of, I guess, more clueless, what I was thinking I could, about. Yeah, yeah. I could get behind that. Right. So he's just, uh, you know, and, and of course, because he thinks he's, he had it all figured out in terms of this is how guys think and that he had all the answers. So the fact that, He's just really such a dipshit when it comes to understanding sex. Is, uh, it, that, I think, is actually the maybe more the point that's being driven home. Yeah. yeah maybe. maybe. I don't know. Uh, and then, you know, when he goes, to, when he returns the costume, so, again, the, this is where his, the costume owner is full-on pimping out his daughter. And th- I, this, th- this one was, was kind of weird to me in terms of, like, what is the point of this scene in particular with him? I, that, that one, out of all the stuff in the interactions, it's like, why would he it's not, I mean, maybe it's not pedophilia. I don't know how old his daughter is, but it's, you know, it's definitely uncomfortable. So why, why have this interaction at all? I guess. Again, I think it's looking at, um, you know, originally the father was so incensed that this was going on. And now 12 hours later, he's like, Oh, well we could all be happy and I can make some extra money on the side. I I don't know. Uh, but then the other thing is because Bill has I mean, been because like literally like how quickly he went from the incensed father to now basically endorsing you know his daughter as a sex worker. I mean, it, it it's seems... just such a turnaround, right? Right, but it also it made me think that maybe he was already doing that with her, and that he was more frustrated by these guys showing up off schedule or something like that, as opposed to the fact that they were <laughs> going to have sex with his daughter. I mean, it was it's a weird because. Again, it's just a 12-hour progression, so it's it's really strange yeah. that it would get yeah. to it. it would be that Could much be. of a flip. Like you were going behind my back and you set up this this yeah. tryst exactly. without telling me. Yeah. Yeah, so, there could be that as well. So cuz cuz so, and it kind of it flips the it flips the why he would be angry in the earlier scene, right? So it kind yeah. of that would be the result I can of see that. that. 
Yeah. Maybe that's what I actually thought the first time I watched the movie. Yeah. Whatever it is, I think it's pretty funny. Well, and then Bill is, you know, because he heard his wife's dream story and that got him like further pissed off because he keeps visualizing his wife with the naval officer. And so he's going to go out and potentially hook up with Domino. And then again, this is another kind of weird scene to me. You know, when he walks in and he, he meets Domino's roommate and some of the exchanges like the, the I sent you guys the screenshot of him like with the big smile on his face here. It's just a, it's a really, this is super weird energy coming off of Cruz in the scene. I think this is, this is to me is the weirdest performance or the weirdest moment of his performance in the movie. Really? I, yeah. I, I liked this scene because there's a genuine flirtation going on between him and the roommate. Yeah. She's like, oh, I heard about this guy and he, wow, he really is handsome. And, uh, I'm going to put the moves on. And then I just love how everyone's balloon gets deflated immediately. Oh yeah. Domino just found out that she has HIV. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, oh, well, and I just I, lost my boner. It, it's a very, it's a strange moment in the movie, in my mind, because like, that's a pretty sort of devastating piece of information to just be communicated as a, about a secondary character. And then Bill's reaction to it is actually pretty weird too when you watch it. Like after he learns the information, he's unsure with what to do with it or how to handle it. So like you see him partially smile for a second and he gets a little bit jittery. I don't know. It's I, I can't quite figure out what, what mental journey he's going on in terms of it's like, oh, thank God I didn't sleep with her or if yeah, it's a... Yeah, I think maybe, maybe that's what it is. Well, if I had gone through with the plan last night, then I put myself at risk of getting HIV and then like, no, now what's that going to do to my world? Like I... I might get AIDS and die. Uh, I have to tell my wife that I was unfaithful. You know, I slept with a hooker. And like all these things that could go terribly wrong for right. his life if he had just went through with his plan. And now he's going back to try to fulfill that plan, but is confronted with the cold, hard truth. Right. Um, but you could have easily cut this out of the movie. Well, and then he's out walking, and this is where, so, uh, you know, if he did have the Michael Myers mask, it'd probably be good because he's stalked by a guy that is basically Dr. Loomis. He's got the uh, the beige trench coat, <laughs> bald, he's, you know, walking behind him. So there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a Dr. Loomis, Donald Pleasance edge to him. But let me ask you that question. Is that guy, was that guy really following him or not? Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. I think okay. ultimately, you know, because he went back to the house. And so they're like, all right, he didn't get the message the first time. Right. So yeah, yeah. let's just let's like, scare him. Scare we'll, him a little bit. Let's scare him. Have him followed. Make it very plain that he's being followed. So we really drive the point home, and then he'll just drop it. Yeah. Well, and then this leads to the you know the conversation at Ziegler's house where you know Sidney Pollock just basically kind of rolls off that oh you know it was all for show and we knew you were there and people die all the time and again the casual nature with which he's like yeah it's just a dumb hooker. I don't know. I just think he's he's pretty despicable figure in this movie. Yeah. I did like the red pool table though. It was uh, you know, again, reds and blues all over the place. And the blue gate at the house. I just I'm gonna see reds and blues in my head for the next couple of days. Kubrick was a huge Spider Man fan. <laughs> I was gonna say Superman. It's a commentary on <laughs> man and Superman. <laughs> there, there, there you go. <laughs> Anything else you guys wanna say about that scene or any questions about Well, I think it's kinda interesting how like when the next day after the orgy the movie sort of pivots and sort of becomes a murder mystery. Which is using his doctor badge at the hospital to flash and go see her at the morgue, right? That's another thing. I'm a doctor. Yeah. It's Credentials. Kind of but I just went I just went along with it. Like, okay. But yeah, ultimately he's like going down his own conspiracy theory rabbit hole. And then, you know, Ziegler just like pulls him back. Don't overthink it, buddy. Right? She was a junkie and she OD'd. 
Uh, okay, and then uh, so that wraps to the end, which is the you know they're in the toy store. By the way, this is my favorite moment of Nicole Kidman's acting when her her daughter picks up a toy and she has to pretend to be interested <laughs> because parents parents have to go through that acting training all the time. Uh, by the way, I, I get the sense that they're shitty parents. I don't I don't know about you guys, but uh, they, they just seem to be very. Uh, I mean, I well, well I guess Nicole Kidman disengaged. Is at one point. Like she's she's doing she's doing some uh, math with her daughter at one point, so I guess maybe they're not totally disconnected, but otherwise they seem very disengaged with their child. Um, I think yeah. it's somewhat intentional of the like super rich and the elite. They just let someone else, you know, take care of the yeah. daughter and raise yeah. her and stuff. No, I no, I get, I'm saying that's like I think it's a, I think it's a criticism. Uh, I, yeah, I agree yeah. with that. A right, quick quick question though: He comes home and then he sees that, that his mask is lying on the pillow next to his sleeping wife. Question: Who put it there? Was it the power elite as a as a warning, or was it maybe Nicole? She found the mask and she put it there. I just don't know. I mean, I know what he thinks. Well, what, what, I'm sorry. What do you think he thinks? Oh, that it was the power elite that they, it's another warning. Oh, because I actually took it as he thought maybe his wife found it. Yeah, so. that's what I thought too. Yeah. Okay. And she's like, what is this? Like, yeah. All right. Well, that's why I asked the question. Yeah. Because I could too. go either way. Yeah, I, me too. Uh, one question here quickly. The So why do you think Cooper chooses not to show any of the confession? Like what? What's the what's the point of doing that? Because the movie was <laughs> now two hours and forty minutes, and right. yeah. <laughs> it was like okay, they know what happened. Yeah. The audience knows. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah, the, so and then we already talked about the you know the end moment of dialogue, which I think that and the orgy is probably what people remember from this movie if uh, you saw it once. Uh, well, I didn't remember that line. Oh really? Uh, I, I distinctly. Yeah. Remember. Yeah. No, I would. I do now. All right. Well, let me ask you this: um, What did you learn from this movie, Marcus? What did you learn from this movie? Don't crash orgies. That's fair. <laughs> fair. Don't, don't crash orgies you weren't invited to. Colin? If you give Stanley Kubrick the hottest couple in Hollywood, 20 of the best looking nude models in the world, and 400 days of shooting, he can make an orgy scene about as exciting as a tax audit. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, in terms of what I learned, I just wrote down, I have no idea. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> More questions than answers. Yeah, more questions than answers. I mean, um, certainly it's just a, it, it's a, it's a good reminder to, to take care of business on the home front and make sure you check in with your wife. And, uh, you know, so that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a good reminder, I guess. But, um, I don't, I don't know. I just think that it's, uh, I don't know. It's interesting. How about I will, maybe we just jump right to uh, closing thoughts. Marcus, what do you got? I liked it. I thought it was good. I wouldn't say it's great. I think it's visually interesting watching the the, the filmmaking, the scenes um, with the score. I think it's all very captivating, but I don't think it's a great story. I'm not sure it really is a great look at, at much. Um, I think it's trying to comment on a bunch of stuff, but we kind of ignore that and just enjoy the the beauty of it all. I think it's it's great. Uh, letter grade, I would give it a B. Colin? I think it's typical Kubrick. It's not really what the movie is about. Rather, it's the immense style in which it unfolds. Uh, this movie happens to be dreamlike. And while it's ostensibly about sex, it's the furthest thing from sexy. And my letter grade is an A minus. Yeah, I'll say that, uh, I mean, I, I talked about this in the beginning, but certainly this movie was a fascinating rewatch for me. <laughs> I was, you know, because I had preconceived notions as to I was probably going to repeat what I thought when I saw it the first time, which was, you know, boring, uh, you know, just kind of strange and, and not that interesting. Um, I kind of had the exact opposite experience, which is, it was very 
curious uh, just watching this thing all the way through and all of the photography. And so it's obviously, you know, it, it kind of sticks with the Kubrick's in terms of it's just, it's really fascinating and interesting to watch. But now I kind of appreciate this movie in a different way in terms of, um, you know, one level deeper in, in, in what he was going for and, and all of the, you know, the commentary I think he was trying to put into place. And, and, and for me, you know, I can look at this movie and after doing all the reading on it, I can't really separate the story versus all the stories of the behind the scenes stuff. Because when you wrap all that together, <laughs> it's, it's pretty fascinating and it makes Kubrick seem like a really interesting dude. And so that, that's the main thing for me is this is actually probably sort of reawakened an interest in Kubrick. So I'll probably go back and start maybe working my way through his film catalog just to see what I think. Because, you know, I, my impression earlier was, you know, beautiful films, like master filmmaker, really interesting to watch, but very disconnected or detached from the stories. And so if I went back and watched it again, I wonder what my experience would be. So I might do some of that. Uh, my letter grade overall would be a B as well, because I, I'm not sure that this is like a great movie, honestly, but it's a very interesting movie. That's kind of how I'd characterize it. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. All right. You're always <laughs> surprising me. I thought you'd you now you'd you'd give it a higher grade, whereas uh, you you gave this movie the exact same grade that you gave to Edward Scissorhands, which you hated. <laughs> right. Well, that this that, movie's that's... fantastic. It's original. It's beautiful. I give it a C minus. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, my 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 Edward Scissorhands grade. Just to be very clear on that one, was I was trying to be objectively objectively grade the film and say, yeah, you know, it's like lots no, of interesting stuff. It's yeah, for me personally, that movie's an F. So <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> uh, nails on a chalkboard. All right. Well, uh, uh, hope you enjoyed our uh, long meandering uh, journey through the film Eyes Wide Shut. Very much mirrored Bill's experience in the film itself. Uh, where we just kind of went around and did a lot of stuff, but it didn't really mean anything ultimately. <laughs> so that would be a, a good summary <laughs> of our podcast today. <laughs> so, uh, oh and otherwise, I'll say this is the Real DMC Podcast. Signing off. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye. Can you really make change for 100 by ripping it in half? I, I don't think that's how change works. We just make change. We're the change bank. Somebody came in with a 50. They asked for 25 twos. We also could do five tens. <laughs> or ten fives. Uh, Somebody came in with a wrinkled $10 bill, and they asked for a crisp one. <laughs> I just said, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. <laughs>